Vida Abundante welcomes you to our SoundCloud page. We'd like to invite you to download our app, available in the App Store and on Google Play. Also, you can now follow us on Instagram under the name Vida Abu or on Facebook under the name Vida Abundante Cicero. We're just going to keep going through the Bible, and we're just going to keep going verse by verse through Hosea, and it's a good note because we're still talking about this wonderful aspect of God's love and grace and reconciliation to his people. We spoke last month, I mean last month, last week, or last year, we spoke on, on how God provided a fresh start and how God provides fresh starts. And all of us love a fresh start. That's at the beginning of the year, we're kind of in that uh, feel-good moment where it's a fresh beginning, a new start, new ideas can come up, new, new vision, new dreams. And, and we love that because it's, it gives us an opportunity to start over again. And God has provided that for his people even in the midst of judgment. If you've been with us for this entire time, you've seen how God has accused his people. God has brought judgment to his people. But now God is bringing people back to himself and bringing a fresh start, a kind of reconciliation. It's a time of God saying, I've seen what you've done. I've seen your mistakes. I've gotten angry at your mistakes. And I will judge you for your mistakes. But now that I've done all of that, I'm providing forgiveness, and I'm giving you a new opportunity. This is the God that we often forget about. This is the God that often seems very distant to us because most of us have these two uh, poles, polar opposite uh, concepts of God. Either God is too judgmental, too hurtful, too too, uh, in your face, too wrathful, too angry, or on the other pole, God is the the teddy bear God that we've always talked about, that that lovey-dovey God that doesn't punish his people or doesn't bring judgment upon his people. So there's two poles that we're often on the extremities of, and we're often on one or the other, and we don't realize this, and sometimes when we're too on the wrathful judgment side of God, we often forget that God has grace and God has love. But when we're also on this side of the, of the pole, we often forget that God does judge and God is wrathful and there is consequences to be paid. So we have to always put these into balance and, and realize that this same God that provides judgment and provides uh, the consequences to his people is the same God that also brings reconciliation. The entire time that we study Hosea, God is doing this in order to bring his people back. We've seen this. We've seen it in chapter 1. We've seen this in chapter 2. God is providing these these judgments for his people because he wants them to come back. Realize your mistakes. Be aware of your mistakes. at, At a basic level, it's kind of you're driving down the 290 and you're going 95 miles an hour and you get pulled over. And you get a ticket of about 300 bucks. I don't know if it's 300 now, but if you get it, I'm not, I'm not talking by experience either. But $300 ticket, and what, what does that do to you? It, it causes you to always be mindful of cops, but it also causes you, maybe I shouldn't go 95 miles an hour on the 290 uh, during traffic hour on the shoulder. Maybe I should 
at least go 75. You know, that's a decent uh, 15 miles over the speed limit or 10 miles over the speed limit. It's not that bad. It causes you to restrain yourself. It causes you to think twice. It causes you to hold back because you know what's going to happen if you don't. So in a certain way, God provides these warnings. God provides these judgments, and it's kind of telling his people, hold back. Realize your mistakes because there is judgment on those mistakes. But unlike the cops and unlike civil justice, God is truly just. And even though in our midst of that and being God's people, he brings us back to himself. So let's read verses 14 through 15 and 16, and and we're going to get this notion of it once again. So we we studied these verses last week, but I just want to read through them once more. Verse 14 says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. And bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name No more. We'll stop right there. We spoke a little bit last week on this God that is now bringing reconciliation to his people. He's giving people back the gifts, and he's providing the gifts in the most strangest places. Where is he giving her the vineyards? He's giving her the vineyards and her production in the middle of a desert. We all know that nothing grows in a desert, and yet God has been providing his gifts in the middle of of a desert. Why? Because God, once again, is proving to his people that he is faithful, that he loves them. Remember that if you are God's people, always remember this, God loves you. Sometimes that's a harsh reality to realize. When we we look at our lives and we examine our lives, we're like, does God really love you? My friend, if if you are partaker of the Lord's table, You are loved by God. God loves you. Remember that. Keep that to heart. And so he provides this in a sterile place. He provides life and he gives back the fruits and he gives back the produce and he gives back the vineyards. And then we talked a little bit about the valley of Accor. If you read in verse 15, it says, there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. We talked about what the valley of a core means. The valley of a core means what? If you paid attention last week, the valley of a core means trouble. A core in the Hebrew is trouble. This is where Achan was stoned to death for bringing trouble upon Israel. And this is very important so we don't skip this. The valley of a core is an important, not geographical location, but the, the meaning of what happened at a core is very important. What has been going on in Hosea this entire time? There is a competition of of lovers, correct? There are lovers that are competing with each other. Although God is not competing with the other lover, but the, the woman, in this case Israel, is giving her affections and her attention to other gods. What Hosea describes as 
whoring after other gods, and he uses that language. And when we get to chapter 4, it's going to get even more in your face. But anyways, we've seen this. We've seen this competition. We've seen how she has given herself to other gods. And in, in Hosea and Gomer's case, Gomer has gone after other lovers. And she's, she's, she has these two lovers in, in, in kind of juxtaposition against each other. They're put against each other, and she picks and chooses what she wants from each lover. What a nice wife, right? And Israel is putting these uh, gods against each other, and we've seen this time and time again. This is the competition. This is what's going on. And so when Hosea mentions the valley of Accor, it's very important to understand that he's reminding Israel of the ancient site of infidelity. This is where Israel was unfaithful to God for the first time after crossing the Jordan. Now, this is why this valley is very important. Yes, last week I mentioned it briefly and I gave you the technicalities of it, but I want to really zoom in on why it's important today. The Valley of Accor is the place where Akan was stoned to death. And remember, 36 people of the Israelite army went up, uh, 3,000 people went up to Ai to conquer the land of Ai, but, but then uh, Ai conquered them and they killed 36 of their men. And Joshua goes to the Lord and he says, why did you allow this to happen? You're gonna, the, the people are going to die here now. The, these other people are conquering us and our people are scared. And God says, I did this because you have stolen from me. So God brings judgment on his people at the very beginning. So this is impressive. Think about this. God has led his people out of, out of Egypt, and that's the first generation. Now the second generation that were not led out of Egypt, they remember the stories of their grandparents telling them, one day God led us out of Egypt and took us into the land of Canaan and brought us here. And now this second generation, this generation of, of, of youngsters... Now they get to experience the same thing that their parents experienced. They weren't just hearing what God did at the Red Sea when God parted the ways. But now, at the Jordan River, when Israel was about to conquer Jericho, what happens? God opens the waters again. And the people of Israel cross over into the Jordan. And they cross over safely. And then what happens? And then the story of Jericho. You guys remember the story of Jericho, right? This huge fortified city, a city that is protected, and, and people are afraid of Jericho. And then what, what does God tell the people to do? He says, march around the city, and we get this weird kind of like, what's going on? They're singing, they're, they're shouting, and then at the seventh time, they shout, and what happens? Jericho's walls come tumbling down. And then God says, and he warns them very carefully in Joshua chapter 6, he says, destroy absolutely everything do not take anything for yourselves all these goods will be set apart for destruction and God says they will be set apart for me and for destruction and so at that very beginning here this, this is where you this is why it's so important to understand this at the very beginning of Israel's uh, kind of conquering of the land that was promised to them God shows himself mighty to them. He brings down the walls of Jericho. He allows them to conquer a big people, a warful people. 
And in that victory, the first time that God, that they conquer, the first time that they experience for themselves the hand of God and at their favor, the people of Israel become unfaithful. And that's why this valley of Accor is so important. Because Akan steals, he loots, he takes silver, and he takes gold, and then he even takes a fancy garment. And Akan says to Joshua, I saw it, and I coveted it with my eyes. Akan looked at the gifts of other people, and he took him for himself. And then what did Akan do? Then Akan said he took it to his tent, and he buried it underneath the earth so that no one would know what he did. Akan thought that he could hide his sin from God. Akan thought that he could hide his infidelity from God. And what's, what's even more crucial here is that when God calls out his people, God says in chapter 7 of Joshua, I am upset and my wrath is against Israel. Say, wait, man, it was just a con. It was a con who did it. It wasn't all of us. Don't blame us for this guy's sin. And then he repeats it again because Israel sinned. He's pointing out everybody in the camp. And so it represents a moment of infidelity. And then what happens? Joshua calls him out, and God says, bring him to the valley of Accor. Not only him, but his family. His family was affected by this decision. Took him out to the valley of Accor, and he was burned and stoned to death with his whole family. Now you will be like, whoa, that, that's a bit much. No, like he stole a jacket and some coins. Like, relax, God, it's not a big deal. Well, that's precisely for God, that is a big deal. Because in chapter 6 of Joshua, you can study this on your own at your home. In chapter 6 and in chapter 7, God specifically reminds Israel why not to do it. This stuff is set apart for me because he reminds them of the covenant he did with their fathers in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 20, God tells Israel, when you conquer these lands and when you conquer these people and when you conquer the Canaanites, which was in the, Jericho was in the land of Canaan, when you conquer them, do not take anything for yourselves because you will be prone to worship their gods. You will be prone to give their, uh, the gold to their idols. You will be prone to turning your back on me. At the beginning of this entire story, it's always been about worship. Who are you going to worship? And Hosea has shown that Israel has been worshiping and loving other gods. And Accor is mentioned because that was Israel's first sign of infidelity. That was their first demonstration, not by the first generation, but by the second generation. The first generation showed their infidelity immediately after crossing the, the, the Red Sea. These people, the second generation, showed their infidelity immediately crossing the Jordan River. And they were going to become prone to worshiping false gods. And that is exactly what Hosea's message is. 
and why God has tried to eliminate that from their lives. You will be used to, you will become accustomed to, if you take from their land, if you get from them, if you receive from them, you will eventually be like them, and you will not be a separate people, and you will not be my people, you will be like them. As a matter of fact, the Lord's table represents that at a high degree. Why can't everyone participate in the Lord's table? Well, if you think about it, what separates us from the world? What separates us from the people out there that hate church, that hate God, that, that don't want anything to do with it? I mean, there's people, look, look, there's about 50 of us here, and there's about a million in Cicero right now just chilling at home watching Netflix or not even awake yet. Or some of people are probably eating French toast in their bed, all comfortable and cozy and, and getting drinking coffee and watching, getting ready for the Bears game later. They're, just, they're, they're enjoying their Sunday, and you guys are here like, man, man, what's the difference? The difference is that you've been called, that you are a special people. It's not that you're special. Special in the sense that you, ooh, look at you. It's that God has called you out from your life of sin. And God is waiting to call them from their life of sin too. But if we just say that the, the Lord's table is for everybody, then what's the difference? Then it really doesn't mean anything. Why partake? If it, there's no meaning in it, if anyone could do it, then why do it? It symbolizes the separation. And from the beginning, God has said, do not be like them because then you will not be my separate people. You will not be my holy, distinct people. And that is what God has called his people to do. And therefore, the valley of Accor, this is the beauty of it, because it demonstrates Israel's infidelity. It demonstrates their initial sign of being uh, unfaithful to God. And in that un unfaithful sign, God says, that sight, that valley of Accor, that troubled sight, will now be turned into a door of hope. This is the beauty of God. And we've seen this in Hosea. God reverses the names time and time again. You, will, you who will not have mercy will now have mercy. You who will not be shown compassion will now be shown compassion. The valley of trouble will now be a valley of when God forgives his people, he renames them, and he gives them a new purpose. That's the beauty of God. When God gives, he gives in such a way where he gives a new purpose and intention to this giving. It's not just God giving gifts. It's giving a new purpose. The valley of Accor will not be the valley of Accor no longer Isaiah 65 says the same thing. There, it will be a fruitful place, a, fruit, a, 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 a place of pasture lands where, where, where the sheep will graze. It will be a place of abundance. The valley of Accor will not be known anymore as a, as a place of trouble, but now will be known as a place of hope. Israel's infidelity, first infidelity, will not be remembered any longer. It will now be remembered as a place of hope. That feels good to the sinful ear. In a sense, we hear this and we say, man, that feels good when 
that God will not remember my past? Man, that's a good thing. Many of us wish our husbands or our wives will not remember our past. But God will not remember our past. God will delete our past and will bring in those nasty moments of our past, God brings this valley of hope. And so we dig in further. Verses 16 through 17 are very important. And that's why I'm going to spend the remainder of our minutes here in verses 16 through 17 because it talks about the restoration, the final restoration. God is now restoring his people. And what is God doing in, in these verses? God is removing false worship, which is what we've been talking about this entire time, and then providing true worship. Read with me one more time verses 16 and 17 so you could see what we're talking about. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. Let's stop right there. In that day, there's this sense of hope. Once again, what's the valley of a core? The door of hope. In that day, when salvation comes, in that eschatological referencing of a moment of salvation, a time, a promise of renewal, if, if they were in a moment of struggle, God is promising a time of renewal. Now, now we've been talking from God to Israel this entire time, but we cannot forget the metaphor. Gomer and his wife. We cannot forget that the sign act is Gomer and, and Hosea. Sorry, I said Gomer and his wife. Hosea and Gomer. This sign is, must be prevalent in our understanding. Because now Hosea is talking about a moment in time where he will renew his vows with his wife. Was this Hosea's fault? Was Hosea the one unfaithful? In, in the first two chapters, who is unfaithful? It's Gomer. The wife has been the one who has been whoring around. The wife has been the one who has been sleeping around. The wife has been doing all the negative aspects of the marriage. And, and Gomer is, and Hosea is providing a day where that will no longer take precedent in his mind. He will no longer remember that. That is a, a time and a promise of renewal of a new commitment for her. And so what does God say to Israel? You will call me my husband. A reversal of the name again. Israel was used to calling other gods their husband. And God reverses this, his name now. And they will, he, they will call him his husband. Check, check out this verb. that It's an imperfect verb that says, that day will come when you will call me. You will call me. It's not an imperative verb. We've done a lot of imperatives here. We've seen the use of verbs that mean you have to do this. Now, what does an imperfect verb mean? It says, it means that it's something that will take place. It is not demanded but it will take place. So what is God saying? Israel's heart 
will finally change so that she recognizes who her God is. That's a beautiful aspect. Now, now think about it. Hosea can be telling his wife, Gomer, the day will come when you will call me my husband again. You will call me your husband. Not in a forceful way, not in a way saying, darn it, you're going to call me my husband because if you don't call me my husband, I'm going to take away everything again. And, and it could be a forceful, like, you better call me my husband. I'm going to lock you up in my house. I'm going to close you in the door. And it's in not in any regards to that. It will, it's talking about that Gomer will change her heart. Her heart will ch- be changed to love her husband. Think of the impact that is. Think about that husband, or even in this case, the the wife in our 21st century. Think about the people who have suffered infidelity. Think about the the marriages that have gone through unfaithful partners. What is always going on in the mind of the person who has suffered infidelity? Will he or will she do it again? Right? It's always in the back of the mind. And that's why they're like, let me see your phone. Where were you at? Who were you talking? Who was that girl? Why did you friend her on Facebook? What? What? What is it? So there's always this like doubt. There's always this lingering uncomfort kind of going on because what's going on in the heart? They believe that that can happen again. That they will suffer infidelity again. You did it to me once. You may possibly do it to me again. But what God says and what Hosea is saying is that, that her wife, his wife will have a change of heart. So it's not imposed over her, but she will come back to him wholeheartedly. Think about that. A marriage who has suffered infidelity, and, and you have that lingering kind of feeling that, oh, I, I, I still sense it, I can still feel it, he's still a cheater, he's still, I, I think he's doing this, or I think she's doing that. But when you realize that that person has changed completely from the heart, you sense that, you get this feeling of, wow, this person will never cheat on me again because her heart has changed, or his heart has changed. What is he saying? The affections have changed. Now they're completely devoted to their spouse. And that is what God is saying here. You will call me my husband. Your heart is going to change. You will no longer call me my Baal. Now this is important. Why, what does this mean, my husband, my Baal? Well, it's interesting because the Hebrew word is used here. It's the same. They're, they're, they're the same words. Ish. Ish means bell, and ish means husband. So in the Hebrew, it's written in such a way that it's the same word. Ish means husband, and ish means also bell. So what is God trying to say here? Israel's syncretism, if you guys know what that means, Israel's combining of worship between Yahweh and Baal she became accustomed to calling Yahweh Baal. So in the Hebrew, Baal also means Lord, owner, husband. 
It has that same meaning of, of, of husbandry, but it also reminds us of the Canaanite god Baal, the god of fertility. So in Israel's syncretism, she was calling Yahweh Baal, but not Baal as in husband. She was calling him Baal as in the god of fertility because she thought that her gifts were coming from Baal when they were really coming from her real Ish, her real husband, Yahweh. So what is God saying? You will not call me Ish anymore. In a sense saying, you're not going to call me Baal anymore and get it all confused. Up until this moment, you've been getting my name confused with your other lovers. You will not call me that anymore. I will remove it from your mouth. And then he goes into verse 17. I will remove it. I will remove the names. There goes that plurality again. This, Israel was not just cheating on God with one lover. She was cheating on God with multiple lovers. Once again, Gomer was not cheating on Hosea with one lover. She was cheating on Hosea with multiple lovers. It goes further into unfaithfulness. I will remove those names. Those names will no longer be invoked. You will not call upon these names any longer because when you call upon these names, what you're doing is you are worshiping them. So in the first verse of, of verse 16, it's taking back the name, getting rid of a false worship. You're not going to worship me falsely anymore. And when... In verse 17, when he removes the names, he restores proper worship. It's a remembering of Exodus 23, verse 13. If, you don't have to go there, but just write it down. Exodus 23, 13 says, Pay strict attention to everything I have said to you. You must not invoke the names of other gods. They must not be heard on your lips. Israel, from the beginning, was told not to invoke the names of other gods. They should not be on their lips. And so what God is going to do in verse 17 of Hosea is remove them completely. What does he say? For I will remove the names of the bells from her mouth, and, she shall, and they shall not be remembered by name anymore. They will be removed from the mouth. They will be removed from the mind. They will be removed from the heart. The affections. And what does that do? Now, Hosea, Hosea's wife, will come back to him wholeheartedly. Now Israel will go back to God wholeheartedly and worship God alone. They will never again be remembered. Think about that. Think about that in, 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 Go, in Hosea's case. Gomer's lovers, like... Everyone in, in, in our modern culture, you have this fight with your spouse or your, your boyfriend or your girlfriend, and you kid around, and you're like, man, remember that ugly girlfriend you had? Yeah, you know her. You remember her. That, that girl was ugly. I don't know how you went out with that girl. I don't know how you married that girl. I don't know how you did. And, and, and you go back and forth with the exes, right? And you think that, oh, my God, what if he remembers his ex? What if, they, what if he's following his ex on a secret account and stuff like that? What if he's doing And you're just like, what, what, what God is doing is saying, they will never be remembered. They are wiped clean. 
They will never be invoked again to be given worship. They will not be in the mouths again. They will not be mentioned by name anymore. God restores the worship of God alone. They will forget their bows and focus on God. It is an erasing of the memory. Do you remember at the beginning of chapter 1 and, and, and towards chapter, the beginning of chapter 2, what did Israel forget? Israel forgot her God. And now God reverses the role in Israel's life, and he reverses it by saying, now you're going to forget them. And now you're never going to ever, ever again remember the names of your lover. Because you will, that day will come when you will worship God in God. Incorrect worship in verse 16, proper worship in verse 17. What God is after is seeking people that worship him with their heart. So friends, you could come here and sing and clap and give $2 for your offering or $5, whatever you give. You can take, participate in the Lord's Supper you can do all this lingo, but if your heart is not devoted to God, you're still worshiping Baal. You're still, in Hosea's words, whoring after other gods. What God wants from his people is a worship of the heart. Heart worship. Devotion from the hearts, where God restores, takes away all of this stuff, and we will get to that day, and we pray that in Vida Abundante, in the English service, we are people that only have eyes for our God. And that's tough to do in 21st century. It's tough to do when everything is pulling at us. And everything's trying to take our attention away from God. But our job and our role is to seek after God with our heart. Give God your heart. Because that is what God is after. So, so with that, let's stand up. been praying that this year we, uh, we become people that really seek after God. We can't stress that enough here. The reason why we're devoted to scripture reading and to getting into the scripture is because we want you to know who God is and what he has said. If you haven't missed, if, you, if you've been missing out on this person of God, on the character of God, on the nature of God, we pray that you come back to him. There's a call out there on your guys' lives to be people of his word. So every Sunday that you come here, do it with your heart. Do it with your heart and give God your heart for worship. So let's pray. We thank you, Father, for, for everything that we've just learned and what you've just spoken to us through your word about. The fact that you're going to give us back our produce, our gifts. You're going to give us 
You're going to restore our old memories from valleys of trouble. You're going to give us hope. You're going to delete and erase completely our memories of other false lovers. And you're going to give us the opportunity to worship you wholeheartedly. I pray that in this church, as a church people, we daily seek to turn away from our false gods so that our hearts are completely devoted to you. Father, forgive us for doing so. But for those who have who feel guilty or culpable for rejecting you, Father, remind them today that you will take away those gods from their hearts. That you're going to restore their worship. Father, through repentance, their worship will come and be restored and they will give you genuine, heartfelt worship. I pray for every single family Every single man, husband, and wife in this place, troubles that they have, may have been feeling throughout, throughout these couple of months, maybe some, some bitterness towards each other, maybe some hatred towards each other, maybe some fights have been in the house that we don't know about, Father, but they know and you know. Father, we pray that you remind them what it means to be restored and that if you can restore a rebellious, unfaithful people like Israel, you can restore that rebellious husband or that rebellious wife. We pray for the marriages here, and we pray for every single person. In Jesus' name, they are in your hands. Amen.